together. This time to the book of Romans, chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. And I'm going to read and preach verses 17 through 21 this morning, where Paul talks about his mission to those who've never heard, to those who've never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says that he makes it his ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, but to those who have never been told of Christ, to those who have never heard the gospel of Christ. That was Paul's ambition. And I think Paul's Paul's mission and Paul's ambition can challenge us as believers today. It can challenge us to think about what our ambitions are and do they align with Scripture? Our priorities, are they God's priorities? These verses can challenge us to think about that, to think about the fact that still today, actually, there are those who've never heard. Even in our modern world, our technologically advanced, connected world, there are still those who've never heard the gospel. And it's, I think, challenging. I know it was challenging to me this week in preparation to think about where that is on our list of priorities and our ambitions. But I think Paul's mission and Paul's ambition here can help us. It can inspire us. By God's grace, our priorities can be reordered. By God's grace, our alignment can be adjusted so that our priorities are God's priorities and our ambitions align with his word as was the case with the Apostle Paul. And it's my prayer that God would do that work in each of us as we humbly receive his word together this morning. And so let's, let's pray together for that, and then we'll begin. God, we do pray that you would challenge us as we look at these verses together. So often our ambitions and our priorities are worldly, but we want them to be godly, So please reorder our priorities and realign our ambitions with your word. And especially we pray that you would grow in each of our hearts a concern for those who've never heard the gospel of salvation through faith alone in Christ. We pray in his name, amen. Romans chapter 15, reading verses 17 through 21. This is God's word. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, So that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand." We're going to look first at what verses 17 through 19 say about Paul's ministry, and then we'll look at what verses 20 and 21 say about Paul's mission. 
So Paul's ministry and then Paul's mission. And in verses 17 through 19, he begins by saying something rather unexpected, I think, about his ministry. And it's a bit unexpected because, well, he says he has reason to be proud of his work for God. And we're not supposed to be proud. It's a little unexpected. We're not supposed to be prideful because pride is a sin against God, right? Pride is contending for supremacy with God, as Charles Bridges once put it. Pride is stealing glory from God. Pride is exalting ourselves over God instead of humbling ourselves under God. So what is Paul saying here when he says, I have reason to be proud of my work for God? Well, notice the qualifiers, and there are four of them. First, notice the phrase at the beginning of the verse, in Christ Jesus. It's in Christ Jesus that Paul has reason to be proud of, his, proud of his work. Not in himself. It's in Christ Jesus. He doesn't say, in myself I have reason to be proud of my work. He says, in Christ I have reason to be proud of my work. Second, he says, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. His work wasn't for himself and his own glory. It was for God and God's glory. Third, notice the word then. In Christ Jesus, then I have reason to be proud, which points us backwards to the previous verses where Paul basically says, God gave me the grace of apostleship. God gave me this work. In Christ Jesus, then I have reason to be proud of my work for God because God is the one who gave me my work. He didn't take it upon himself. He was given this as a grace from God. And then fourth, notice what he says at the beginning of the next verse, verse 19. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. So he has reason to be proud of his work for God because his work for God is really God's work through him. His work is really God's work in that sense. And so he's proud, not in Paul, but in God. It's similar to what he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 28 through 31. Listen, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And that's what Paul's doing here, ultimately. He's boasting in the Lord. He's proud of his work for God because God gave him his work, because it's in Christ Jesus, not himself, because it's for God, not him, And because it's God's work through him. It's what Christ has accomplished through him. And I think all that's a good reminder to us when it comes to our own work more generally. Whether our work is in the workplace or in the home or at school or wherever. It's true for us as well that God 
gave us our work in his wise providence. And it's in Christ Jesus that we do our work as believers, abiding in him, drawing strength from him. And we are to do our work for God, not for ourselves, for the glory of God. And our work for God is ultimately God working through us. Sort of like a young child helping her mother stir the batter to make cookies. And her hand is on the spoon, but her mother's hand is also on that spoon. The little girl is stirring, but more importantly, her mother is stirring with her, through her even. So it is in a way with God and us in our work. He is working through us. So in whatever work you do, do it for God. Do it in Christ Jesus. Remember that he gave you your work. And remember that he works through you. Rely on him and trust in him. And give all the glory to him as Paul did, as we, as we hear Paul doing in these verses. So Paul says he's proud of his work for God and that he will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through him. And let's consider that now, what Christ has accomplished through him and then how and then where. So what has Christ accomplished through him, then how, then where. What has Christ accomplished through him? He says, what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. That's what Christ accomplished through him, to bring the Gentiles to obedience. It's like he said back in chapter one, verse five, through Christ we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. To bring about the obedience of faith among all the nations, to bring the Gentiles to obedience. That's the work that Christ accomplished through the apostle Paul. To bring the Gentiles to obedience would include both the initial obedience of them repenting of their sins and believing in Jesus for their salvation and the ongoing obedience of them living for Christ by the enabling grace of the Spirit. And this was the focus of Paul's ministry as the apostle to the Gentiles. This is the work that Christ accomplished through him to bring the Gentiles to obedience, to the obedience of faith in Christ and the obedience of following Christ. That's what Christ accomplished through him. Then he mentions how Christ accomplished this through him. You can see he uses three phrases there at the end of verse 18 and the beginning of verse 19. By word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. This is how Christ accomplished through Paul the bringing of the Gentiles to obedience. First, it was by word and deed. It was through the verbal proclamation of the gospel in Paul's preaching and the nonverbal manifestation of the gospel in Paul's living. It was through Paul reflecting and proclaiming Christ, like we say in our mission statement, which of course is similar to the earthly ministry of Jesus himself, who proclaimed the gospel and performed miracles. As we read in Matthew 9, verse 35, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. By word and deed, 
Our ministry as well today should include both word and deed, speaking the truth in love to others and doing good to others in the name of Christ. So it was by word and deed. Secondly, it was by the power of signs and wonders, signs and wonders, which verified the authority and the authenticity of the message Paul proclaimed. As he said in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with the utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. Or as it says in Hebrews chapter two, verses three and four, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So the signs and wonders that were performed by Paul were sort of like God's signature at the bottom of Paul's message, verifying the authority and the authenticity of his message as coming from God and not from himself. I like the way the study note in my study Bible put it. It says, such miracles gave a sign of or pointed to the power of God, the divine origin and truth of the gospel, and God's mercy and love for people. They were wonders in that people were amazed by them, by the power of signs and wonders. Then the third phrase is, by the power of the Spirit of God. The work was not accomplished by the power of the Apostle Paul. The work was accomplished by the power of the Spirit of God. Turn ahead to 1 Corinthians for just a second. Chapter 2, if you would. It's the book right after Romans. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I want to look at what Paul says in verses 1 through 5 of 1 Corinthians 2. Keeping in mind this phrase, by the power of the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. See, if Paul did what he did in the power of Paul, people would rest in the wisdom of Paul. But Paul did what he did in the power of God so that people would rest in the power of God. Paul didn't function like a battery running on his own power. He was plugged in to the power of God. He ran on the power of the Spirit. And that's what all of us can do. All of us should do as Christians. It's what we vowed to do, actually, those of us who are members of this church. Membership vow number three, do you now resolve and promise in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live as becomes a follower of Christ? We've promised, we've vowed, 
to endeavor to follow Christ, not relying on our own power, but relying on the power of the Spirit and humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit. And when the Spirit is our power source through faith and prayer, then we'll never run out of power to follow Christ. So what did Christ accomplish through Paul? The work of bringing Gentiles to obedience. How was this work accomplished? By word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. And then notice briefly what he says about where this work was accomplished. Middle of verse 19. So that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Basically, from Jerusalem in the lower right-hand corner of the map, the southeast corner, all the way around to Illyricum in the upper left-hand corner of the map, the northwest corner, Paul had fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, the ministry of proclaiming the gospel and planting churches that would themselves proclaim the gospel and plant churches. That is the work that Christ had accomplished through Paul. That was Paul's ministry. But he goes on to talk about his mission. It's our second main point now, Paul's mission. In light of the fact that he's already fulfilled his ministry in those regions, his mission is to preach the gospel in regions beyond. Notice first in verse 20 what Paul says about his ambition. What he says about his ambition. And thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. And thus, again, because I've already fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, therefore, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel in other places, in regions beyond where I've already been, where Christ has not yet been named. Paul's ambition was to preach the gospel which when you think about it is really shorthand for preach the gospel and plant churches, which is what he'd been doing. He didn't just parachute in, tell people about Jesus, and then leave. No, he stayed, often for a long time. And he engaged in both evangelism and discipleship in proclaiming the gospel and planting churches. And the mission of the church today is the same. As it's been said, Jesus didn't tell us to go into all the world and make converts. He told us to go into all the world and make disciples. Meaning not just those who profess faith in Christ, but those who possess faith in Christ and express faith in Christ in their lives. Of course, we want to see people come to faith, but we also want to see people grow in faith. We want to see people mature in faith as disciples of Christ and share their faith with others so that others can come to faith and grow in faith. And we don't just want to see that in our church. We want to see that in other churches and in new churches that are planted, especially in places where there is little or no gospel witness. And that's what Paul wanted. That was his ambition good place for us to pause and ask ourselves, what are my ambitions? 
What am I aiming at in life? What are my goals? It's fine to have lots of ambitions and aims and goals in life related to our work or our finances or our health or our relationships. But what are your highest ambitions? What are your highest aims, your highest goals? And as I said at the beginning, do they align with Scripture? Your priorities, are they God's priorities as revealed in His Word? Paul's example can challenge us here to reorder our priorities if needed, to realign our ambitions with Scripture, to make sure that God, God is at the center of our ambitions and aims and goals, not ourselves. It doesn't work if we're at the center. It's not right if we're at the center. To make sure that we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, not our kingdom and our own comfort and ease. And whenever we find that our priorities are not God's priorities, whenever we find that our ambitions are out of alignment with God's word, isn't God gracious to forgive us? when we confess our sins to him? Isn't he, isn't he gracious and powerful to transform us? To reorder our priorities and realign our ambitions with the standard of his own word? He is. Paul's ambition was to preach the gospel. And let's look at what he says about where and why. Where, he says, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. His ambition is to preach the gospel where Christ hasn't already been named. That is, where people haven't already named the name of Christ in repentance and faith. He doesn't want to build on someone else's foundation. Others, others can do that important work. But he wants to break new ground. He wants to lay other foundations in other lands. And that missionary impulse should still be part of the church of God today. Of course, we need more than just foundation layers. We need framers, HVAC guys, plumbers, electricians. We need people to install the insulation and the drywall and people to finish the house and to furnish the house and all of us can play a part in the building of the house of God. But the emphasis here is on the foundation laying. And Paul says that it's his ambition to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named yet. Not to build on an existing foundation, but to break new ground for a new foundation. His ambition is to preach the gospel where? Where Christ has not been named yet. But how about why? He tells us in verse 21. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Why is this his ambition? Because it's what God prophesied, and it's what God promised. His mission is the fulfillment of the prophecies and promises of the Old Testament. Like the one he quotes here from Isaiah 52, verse 15. 
that those who have never been told of him will see and those who have never heard will understand. That's why his ambition is to preach the gospel where Christ has not yet been named because God prophesied and promised that those who have never been told will see. Those who have never heard will understand. You know, it's a frequently asked question about Christianity. What about those who've never heard? What about those who've never heard the gospel? If, as it says in Romans 10, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, if everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved and they can't call on him in whom they have not believed and they can't believe in him of of whom they have never heard and they can't hear without someone preaching and they can't preach unless they are sent, if all that is true, and it is, then what about those who've never heard the gospel? It seems like they didn't really have a chance. It's a good question. And I think the answer is in Romans 1, or at least part of the answer. Turn back to Romans 1 for just a minute. And let me read, starting at verse 18, down through verse 25. Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 18, keeping in mind the question, what about those who've never heard? What about those who've never heard? Romans 1, 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, of mankind, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So those who've never heard are not innocent. They are guilty, like the rest of us. They don't have an excuse. It says that they are without excuse. Though they know God, because God has revealed himself to them, they do not honor him as God or give thanks to him. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They exchange the truth for a lie. They worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. That's what's true about those who've never heard. They've heard plenty. But they've suppressed it in unrighteousness. And that is why they need the gospel. 
because only the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That is why Paul's mission and Paul's ambition is to preach the gospel where Christ is not named. And he does so in fulfillment of God's prophecy and with confidence in God's promise that those who have never been told of him will see and those who have never heard will understand. What about you this morning? Have you been told about Jesus? Have you heard about Jesus? Maybe you're here for the first time this morning. Perhaps you were invited to come by someone who goes here, or maybe you just came on your own. Of course, I would imagine you've heard about Jesus on some level, but have you heard the gospel message about Jesus that Paul's referring to here, the central message of the Bible? It's a simple message, but it's a profound message. It's a life-changing. It's an eternity-altering message, depending on how we respond to it. It is a message first about God, God who is our creator and our king and our judge. It's a message also about man, who we are as those made in God's image, but also as those who've rebelled against God and deserve his judgment, an eternal judgment. It's a message about Christ, the son of God who became a man and lived a perfect life that none of us have lived and died a sacrificial death on the cross that we deserve to die and rose again from the dead, victorious over sin and death and hell. And finally, it's a message about our response to those truths. God calls us to respond to this message by repenting of our sins, by turning away from our sins and by trusting in Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. And he promises that all who turn from their sin and trust in Christ will be saved, will have eternal life with him and his people on a renewed earth forever. That's the gospel message Paul's referring to. And now you've heard it. And I encourage you to believe it. I encourage you to put your trust in Jesus for your eternal salvation as we have been enabled enabled to do as Christians. If you have questions you want to ask, please come find me afterwards. God's prophecy and God's promise is that those who have never been told of him will see and those who have never heard will understand. And Paul's mission and Paul's ambition was fueled by that promise and that prophecy. And it should be the same for us today because, as I said, there are still people today who've never been told about Jesus, who've never heard that gospel message that I just mentioned. There are still so many unreached people groups, so many unreached people in the world, even in our modern connected world, so many people who have no access to the gospel So many people who don't know a single person who's a Christian. Think about that. People who live in an area where there isn't even one Christian church. I once heard that if every Christian all around the world shared the gospel with everyone they knew, and every single one of those people were gloriously converted to Christ, imagine that, Even if that happened, there would still be more than 3 billion people 
about 40% of the world's population who would still be unconverted after that. Because more than 3 billion people, again, about 40% of the world's population, they don't even know a single Christian. They are unreached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is why we need foundation layers. We need all the other trades too, but we, we still need foundation layers in the kingdom of God. So what can we do as we draw to a close? Three things, three simple things. We can pray. We can pray that God would raise up missionaries, even from our own number. Not exclusively, but inclusively those who would go to those who've never heard. Number two, we can send. We can support missionaries, which we seek to do as a church. Again, not exclusively, but inclusively those who are going to those who've never heard. And number three, we can go. We can think about going. We can consider being a foundation layer, trusting that God will lead us and guide us and help us discern whether he is calling us to go. Pray, send, go. And for all of us, we can let Paul's ambition become our ambition. We can let God's prophecy and God's promise fuel our ambition to see the gospel go out to those who've never heard. And by God's grace, that can move up, move way up our list of priorities and ambitions. And we can be confident that according to God's sovereign will, those who've never heard will hear and understand and believe the gospel. Let's pray together. Lord, we do pray that you would give us the same kind of ambition that Paul had to see the gospel go out to those who've never heard. We know there are many more foundations that still need to be laid. We also know that existing foundations need to be built on and repaired in some cases and strengthened and expanded and beautified. But in light of this text, we pray that you would grow in our hearts a passion sincere desire, a strong desire to see the gospel go out to those who've never heard. And we thank you for your promise that those who've never heard will understand. Please accomplish that work through us for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.